Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. So it is Mother's Day, and as you know, when we have these special days, the message, of course, is intended uh, to bring some word of encouragement and challenge and hope to everyone who hears. Uh, But specifically today, we talk about the experience of motherhood from a variety of angles, and, and listen, here's what I do know for certain. Moms are constantly attempting to do mamahood better. I know that. You're constantly trying to improve and constantly aware of your journey of motherhood. And a couple of years ago, something came out that I thought was just brilliant, and I wanted to share it with you. So there's this woman. Her name is Bunmi Latitan. And a couple of years ago, she, she made a, a post about uh, how to be a mom And at the time, it was 2017. How to be a mom in 2017. But it is so applicable today that I think think we can change the first part of this to how to be a mom today. And so moms, lean in. This is what she says means success for a mom today. Make sure your children's academic, emotional, psychological, mental, spiritual, physical, nutritional, and social needs are met while being careful not to overstimulate, understimulate, improperly medicate, helicopter, or neglect them in a screen-free, processed foods-free, GMO-free, negative energy-free, plastic-free, body-positive, socially conscious, um, egalitarian but also authoritative, nurturing but fostering of independence, gentle but not overly permissive, pesticide-free, two-story multilingual home, preferably in a cul-de-sac with a backyard and 1.5 siblings spaced at least two years apart for proper development. Also, don't forget the coconut oil. (laughs) Right? I mean, you feeling her? You feeling? I mean, and yet that's not where she stopped. She said, yeah, that's how to be a mom today. But then she continued with um, how to be a mom in literally every generation before ours, feed them sometimes. <laughs> feed them sometimes. Listen, this morning I hope to be able to bring a word of encouragement and perspective and hope to our moms and people who love our moms everywhere. Because, moms, you worry, you do. Now, you're not the only ones who worry. Dads worry. Grandparents worry. They really do. But your worry is a different league. You constantly carry within you this awareness, this concern. If, if you're healthy and present and attentive, you, you constantly carry this awareness of where the kids are and what they're doing, what the husbands do, what the family is up to. It reminds me a little bit of the mother of Jesus, Mary, and so throughout the Gospels, there's this, there's this phrase that, re, re, that re, re, returns again and again. It's kind of a recurring phrase. She's watching him grow up. 
She's seeing him, observing him, experience life as a child and as a young man. And from time to time, the gospel writer will say, and Mary treasured these things in her heart. See, moms carry in them all the time their concern for their families. But many times it, it, it kind of presents itself as this ball of anxiety and stress and worry that kind of sits there in the pit of the gut, right? And the trouble is, I and mean, the good news is, is that's, that's probably a good thing that keeps most of us alive, right? Is you are why our species continues to move forward, right? But at the same time, if we choose to parent from a place of stress and worry and scarcity and, oh, my, what if, then we can be prone to parent in unhealthy ways. And at times we can, we can do things, make choices, send our children in a direction that we think is actually a pathway to life, but what if it's actually a pathway that takes away life? For example, some of us, if we just live and breathe and lead and love and parent out of this, this gut of stress, it may lead us to do some, well, some guilt-led parenting. And guilt-led parenting is, is, is kind of this, this style of parenting where you're constantly asking, um, is it enough? Is it, is it not enough? Is it too much? Am I too much? Am I not enough? Am I too strict? Am I too permissive? And constantly wringing our hands over their outcome based on our choices. And we become guilty because a lot of our families are, are double workers and so full-time workers in each home. And, and you're like, you know, maybe I didn't listen to him tell me about his day enough last night. Or maybe I didn't take her seriously enough when they were telling me about this problem they're going through. And so out of guilt for not being present, we will be tempted to overindulge. And yeah, you can stay out past your curfew, that's fine. Yeah, you need some more money for some whatever, yeah, take, yeah, no problem. And we overindulge and we smother them with something that perhaps they don't need. Some of us are guilt-driven parents, but some of us, if we operate out of a sense of, of scarcity or a sense of stress or anxiety, we may do different kind of parenting, like uh, helicopter parenting. You know what helicopter parenting is. You, you hover around them, you smother them, you never give them space to become autonomous or, or independent. I was at the barber several weeks ago. I mean, not now, like several weeks ago, right? And, and I was sitting in the chair, and this mom brought her, her son in for a haircut, like two or three chairs down from me, and she proceeded to stand there next to the barber instructing the barber on how to do the barber's job a little bit more here not so much here and I'm like woman it's hair right it it will grow back so some of us will be guilt-driven parents and some helicopter parents but maybe the most the most destructive of all is is lawnmower parents you know what lawnmower parenting is it means these are parents who out of a fear for the well-being of their children they will mow down all of the obstacles that are in front of that child. If there is any trouble, any crisis, any stress, any struggle, they'll mow it down for them thinking, well, that's just what I'm doing to love my child. I didn't have these privileges. So I want to make sure that they have the privileges. So I'm going to make it as easy as possible for them. And what we do 
when we get to that kind of parenting pattern is not bring life. In fact, we, what we do is cripple them. We cripple them. And maybe even worse, it's not that we bring life, but maybe we even bring death. And you're like, well, Sean, come on. Really, death? Are you overstating your point here? No. Because what we do when we either lead by guilt or when we parent as helicopters or when we lawnmower parent, what we do is we kill their capacity to become full, living, autonomous, independent, contributing human beings. We, we, if we get in the way and mow down their troubles, they never learn how to fall down properly. And if they don't know how to fall down properly, they will never learn how to get back up slowly on their own. We can kill their dignity and kill their ingenuity and we can kill their spirit to overcome obstacles that they face in the attempt to actually love them. So I want to offer on this Mother's Day an alternative. An alternative to those life-taking patterns of parenting. I want to offer resurrection parenting. You're like, well, that's something the preacher would say. Yeah, it is. But I say it because we're in the middle of this, this series called Resurrection. And what I've been saying to you has been that resurrection is not just this one-time event, right? But it's an all-the-time invitation to a way of life where you wake up every day and in your waking, you recognize, I have to die to something today. I have to die to myself, to my own sense of control, to my own ego. I have to die to all the old patterns that were taking me down a pathway to death so that Christ can rise up within me and lead me down the paths everlasting. And I wonder what it would look like to parent toward resurrection. What patterns in your parenting must you courageously crucify upon the cross? What assumptions, what need for control, what, what worries and fears might you need to let die in order for the Christ who loves your child even more than you love your child to actually raise up within your child? You see, this is what this story is all about that you heard Trudy read a moment ago. This story in the Bible is all about life and death and resurrection and aliveness, loss, gain, parenting. So Jesus is walking into this town and it's the city of Nain. And Nain is a, is a word that literally means pleasant. The, the town's name was pleasant. So here's Jesus walks through this gate of Pleasantville and the very first thing that Jesus confronts when he walks into this, this realm of pleasant is a funeral. Did you notice? That? The very first thing that he, that he notices that he confronts is this parade, this funeral processional in which there is death right at the gate of pleasant. <laughs> 
And so maybe just on, on the side, just BT dubs, there is a message for parents today, and that is it is okay to recognize that struggle and grief and suffering and hardship and death are a part of presenting a life that is pleasant before your child. So Jesus walks in and he notices at the head of this column, at the head of this funeral procession, is this woman and she's a widow. And the person who has died is not her husband. Her husband had already died years before. The person who had died is her son, her only son. And now in this culture where in the first century, if you were a woman and you weren't somehow connected to a, a, a man, then you were vulnerable. You, you had no security. You had no way of life. In this culture in which that was the reality for widows, Jesus walks in and sees a widow most vulnerable on the brink of being destitute, leading her son to his final resting place, which, which is why James, one of the brothers of Jesus, many years later, so he picks up a pen and he, he begins to write about what religion ought to be and what following Jesus ought to be and how it ought to produce something in us. And he said, look, the only kind of religion that's worth anything, he wrote about it in the very first chapter. This is what he said. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to leave oneself unstained by the world. Jesus walks through the city gate called Pleasant and he sees this woman on the brink of being destitute, completely vulnerable, and the grievers in a line behind her and it breaks his heart. It breaks his heart. In fact, this is what the text says happens next. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her and said to her, do not weep. But what I want you to latch on to in this verse, moms, dads, grandparents, kids, cousins, is this. The word compassion in that verse only happens a couple of times in the New Testament. Here's the Greek word for it. The original word in Greek is uh, esplanktiste. And esplanktiste means compassion. That's where we get that word. But it comes from a root that's related to another word here. Esplanktisomai. Uh, Splanknitsomai. And splanknitsomai is a verb that literally means to be torn up in the gut. Jesus sees the parade leading to death. He notices the widow at the front of the column, completely alone and vulnerable, about to be dismissed by a society who will undervalue her as a human being now, that she's not connected to a man and he is torn up in gut over it. Moms, when you come to a moment in your momhood journey, when you come to a place where you are so overwrought with anxiety and fear and, and worry about your kids, when you come to a moment and you're like, my kids' friends, they just don't understand my, my kid, and if I could just get them to understand, and you realize you can't. 
When you come to that place and you realize you can't change the way their friends are treating them, when you come to a place where you recognize your child is depressed, is sad, is vexed by some some heaviness and darkness, a season in which they're going through, and you can't find your magic wand to make it better, when you see them fall down and, and you know what they need to do to get back up, but you recognize that you can't because unless they get back up on their own, they'll always remain on the ground. In moments when you see them fall down and can't help them up or in moments when they are sick and they are hurting and you know that in a moment, in a single moment, you would absorb into your own body every ache and pain, every fever, but you realize you can't. Or even in those most tragic moments when, when you actually do lose your child. I mean, not just lose them metaphorically, not just lose them like spiritually, emotionally, relationally, but when you see your child die, maybe before they're even born, or after you've known them so well that it just rips your heart out. Jesus sees you and he is torn up in the gut over the thing that tears up your gut. Yeah, yeah. And one mom that I am thinking about specifically this weekend is Wanda Cooper-Jones. Wanda Cooper-Jones is the mother of Ahmaud Arbery. So two months ago, her son was, was, was murdered. And for two months, she's carried around this, this pain in her heart, in her gut. She's been turned inside out for two months. And now that this video has been released just this week, now the consciousness of community and state and nation and world now surges a reawakening of that original pain that really never goes away. And now she realizes that this past Friday was his birthday. This woman who saw him take his first breath. And she realizes that today is Mother's Day. And I want you, my sisters and brothers in the faith, to think for just a moment about what kind of weekend she's having. Jesus sees her and is torn up in the gut over what he sees. Are we? Yeah. So, so in our being torn up in the gut, we take our cues from Jesus because look what Jesus does next in the, in the story. He actually takes action to do something about the thing that tears him up in the gut. This is what happens next in the story. Then he came forward and he touched the bier and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, rise. The dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Jesus comes into the gate called Pleasant and realizes that just inside that gate, just as it is inside the gate of every human heart, is never as pleasant as it looks like on the outside. 
And he sees this funeral parade and he sees this woman and he is torn up in gut over what her experience is. And the first thing he does is he touches the beer. Now, every, every student who's, you know, kind of laughing about that, I get it. Okay, he touches the beer. Jesus touched the beer. No, it's not like Jesus touched the, you know. The beer is a, beer is a structure, a, a kind of a frame that is meant to hold the casket. I mean, you've seen them if you've ever been to a funeral. The, the, the funeral directors will wheel the casket in on this beer, this, this frame. In ancient days and even in current days in other parts of the world, the beer is hoisted upon the shoulders of the pallbearers, and they carry the dead upon the beer. And I want you to think about this image for just a moment. The beer... is a delivery system. The, the, the beer transports the dead to the dead's final resting spot. The beer is a delivery system of that which used to be alive and full of life and promise and hope. The beer is what delivers what used to be alive to its tomb. And... and and I'm wondering today, what are the beers in our families? Because you and I can parent and live and love and lead in our, in our families in such a way that we think that we're building the infrastructure that will carry us to life and will carry us forward uh, and, and our children forward. And surely they need this extra material good. And they certainly need to go to this school. And they have to have this in order to get a good, healthy start on life. And we create these beers. But how many of the beers in which we build the carrying cases, the delivery systems that we build into our families, how many are actually the delivery systems of death? That unknown to us carries our young our children from one place where they could be alive and full of life and aliveness and resurrection but prematurely takes them to a place of demise it's it's the experience of uh so an alcoholics family those who transport from generation to generation patterns of self-destruction that in many ways is handed on to another generation and it becomes the beer, the delivery system of death for their children. I think about, I think about racism. Racism is a beer that, that transports from one generation to the next. I can't get out of my mind the image of this video where the, the father is, is fighting with this young black man, but his son is in the bed of the truck locking and loading we, we have the capacity to pass on racism from one generation to the next. And we, we just, we don't think there's any harm to it, but we create a, an infrastructure, a frame, a beer that travels with us from generation to generation, a, a delivery system of death. And, and it, maybe it's, it's in your family, it's not something that dramatic. Maybe it's, maybe it's an old wound that has never healed. Maybe it's an ongoing fight that you're having and nobody wants to address it. So in this kind of relational malaise or, or inattentiveness, what you're doing is constructing a beer to 
deliver your own next generation forward into doing relationships that are dead? What if in your family there is a marriage that is struggling, but everyone has given up on trying to fight for it? Maybe both sides have given up the fight for it, and the children who are watching that the fight has been surrendered are literally watching us build a beer for them to be delivered prematurely to a place where they are being prepared for dead marriages before they even say, I do. All of our families have been given bears in which we transport the, the, the life that is possible into premature death until we do something about it. So Jesus comes into the city called Pleasant and he sees this death parade and he walks forward and the first thing that he touches in the story is the beer. The first thing that he touches is he doesn't go to the widow and embrace her first. He doesn't go to the pallbearers and touch them on the shoulders and, and lift up one side. He doesn't even touch the dead person to raise him from the dead. He goes immediately in the first place where he puts those hands are on the beer, the delivery system of death. Because in, in the perspective of our Lord, yes, it's important to raise the individual up to new life. But what's even more important is that Jesus says, I have come to identify and then dismantle all the delivery systems of death so that we may call into question the ways in which we carry life to premature entombment. What? Beer in your family does Jesus need to collapse? What beer, what delivery system that has been carrying you down a pathway of death and self-destruction does Jesus need to come and place his hands on? Because I'll tell you what happens next. He places his hands on the beer, and then he turns and he speaks to the dead man, and the dead man sat up. And beloved, when the, when the dead sits up, the funeral is over. Maybe there is someone listening to what I'm saying who you, you, you want there to be life before the funeral in your family. Maybe you see it coming and you know you're being carried toward a place where your life, your marriage, your relationship, your own spiritual well-being feels like it's dying. You're being carried toward a premature death and you need somebody to touch it and not just say you can be alive, but the very system that has delivered death to you is now collapsed because of Jesus Christ. There's this powerful verse in 1 Corinthians, and I, and I want to read it to you here. It says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Do you know what that means? It means not only can you live when you thought you were dead, but it means that death itself is dead. That, that Jesus came to live and to die and to rise to demonstrate to you and me and all of humankind that we serve a God who not only raises the dead, but brings death to death so that you and I actually really can live. The best part of this story happens when he turns and he, the dead sit up, the dead man sits up and and then we hear this final verse, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Jesus 
wants to deliver you. Wants to give to you, moms, dads, grandparents, foster parents, mentors, surrogates who step in and love children who are not their own. God wants to give you back a whole generation that we thought was as good as dead. But it means that you and I have to first be willing to die to every illusion that we can raise the dead. Instead, we yield to the power of the one who not only raises us, but breaks down the beer, the delivery system of death itself. Now, you may be hearing this today, and, and it may sound like really good news to you, but you don't know where to start. Maybe you're a mom or a dad, and you have been worried, but you don't want to be worried. You want to trust more freely. Or, or maybe, maybe you're not a parent at all, but you're hearing something in this message that has something to do with living again when you thought it was all over. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray. The only way is, is to confess, to yield before the power of God's love for you that, hey, look, I, Lord, I, I cannot raise myself from death. I can only allow myself to be crucified with you. I can only put to death the things that I recognize are killing me, but only you, Lord, can raise me up. So I pray today. Maybe you need to pray this right now, eyes wide open, looking at the screen. Maybe you need to pray, God, I yield my family to you. I yield my children to you. I lay my husband before you. I lay my wife before you, my parents before you, because I realize that I have no power to raise them on my own. So I need you to, to take over my heart and my mind. And, and maybe you've never prayed it that way. Maybe you say, God, I, I never have talked this way to you. I never have really come to the place where I admit it that I, I, I'm not enough, but today I do. I admit it. I'm not enough. On my own, I will construct my own delivery system of death. I'll hop on it, and I'll, I'll make my way to my own premature tomb. I admit I'm at the end of me. But the end of me is the beginning of you. I believe that you can do something to give me life and to give my family life once more, to give my marriage life once more. So I confess my need to you. I'm yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Did you pray that? Because if you did, it was heard. The Lord hears us when we cry, especially when the cry is out of desperation, when it's sincere, when it's real. And so now, if you've just given your life to Jesus, or maybe you've given your life back to Jesus after a long time, you need to tell somebody. There's power in sharing that kind of news with one another. There's encouragement. Because the, the, it takes, well, it takes Paul bearers to bear the, the beer of death, right? But it takes a community of believers to remind ourselves that we have been delivered from death unto life so tell somebody and if you want to tell me I would love to hear your story just email me at sking at jcbc.org because I want to hear what God is doing in your life 
I'll pray for you in the journey. Now, wherever it is that you go on that journey this week, wherever it is that you go when you get up from where you are, may Christ go before you preparing your way. May Christ go behind you on the days that you fear and you feel like retreating to encourage you one step further at a time. May Christ go to your right and Christ to your left, abiding closer than even a sister or brother. May Christ go above you on the days when dark clouds roll in to remind you there is one above the clouds who at the end of the day has the final word. May Christ go beneath you, girding you with confidence and removing all forms of fear. But mostly may Christ go in you transforming you from the inside out until you you feel your heart beating in rhythm with his. Amen.